is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we also love bringing you great commencement speeches. In West Palm Beach, Florida, Kyle Martin addressed the King's Academy's class as its valedictorian. His speech was entitled The 16th Second. The video of his speech was posted on YouTube and immediately went viral. One month later, Kyle's commencement speech received 4 million views. Here's that speech. I stand before you tonight as the 2019 valedictorian. This time last year, I found out that I was in the running for this title. It was then that I decided I wanted it. So, I worked hard for it. I sacrificed for it. And yes, I stressed for it. And I got it. <laughs> and at our senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It was so good. For about 15 seconds. Yeah, 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won. 15 seconds of being at the top of the pile of all my accomplishments. And it felt euphoric. But there must come a 16th second. And on that 16th second, sat down in my seat, I looked at my silver stole that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it? <laughs> what just happened? Why, why am I not feeling anything else? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't even know what I was expecting. A parade of balloons to drop? Or maybe I was hoping that all of my problems would fade away in comparison to this amazing achievement. But none of that happened, not even in my heart. I felt nothing. I was shocked. This was a huge problem for me, and I needed to figure out why. So here was my thought process. Working hard is good. It is, in fact, biblical. But it should not be done for the sole purpose of a goal's sake at the expense of relationship with others. And looking back on this year, I realized that the stress of this year for this goal in a five minute speech was paid for with the lack of attending to relationships in my life. A lesson learned and self-reflection accomplished. Now, I would like you, my fellow classmates, to do some self-reflecting. I would like you to take a moment to fill in a different thing that you strive for and you focused on. Something that you thought was the end all be all. Perhaps it was sports, perhaps it was fine arts, academics, getting into a particular school, an unhealthy social life, social media, or video games. Friends, we are about to launch into life and we haven't messed anything up yet. Now think. Instead of academics taking your focus off your important relationships, it was your career you chose over your spouse. Instead of sports, it's money that you pursue at the detriment of your children. Instead of just the Instagram-worthy picture, it's striving to be famous at the expense of time with your friends because now you're too self-involved. I'm well aware that this is kind of a downer speech, but I don't care. Because a lesson learned should be a lesson shared. Now, I'm glad that I have only made this mistake of striving for something that is in the light of eternity 
not important for just one year. I can't imagine if I had learned this at 50 or at the end of my life. And here's the lesson. Have no regrets in the 16th second. Nothing is more important than your healthy relationships. Nothing. Not your goals, not your successes. And here's why. Relationships are where we get to influence, impact, and change people's lives. Your life cannot be meaningful without them. Now we are put on this earth by our creator and we all have a purpose to advance God's kingdom that all may be saved. Now how we all go about that, that's what's different. It's different in what college we choose, who we marry, and what career we choose. It's different in the triumphs and tragedies that come upon us. But in all those things, new relationships are being formed. As you live your life on this earth, there is no greater good than you can do for a person than to love them so much that you point them to Jesus Christ. But first, he should be your first relationship that you cannot neglect. And I want you to know, I have been here at TKA for 14 years, and I love this school, and I love all of you, my classmates. And tonight, I am imploring you, if you have not begun that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, just do it. There is no better way to start something new and close a chapter of your life than with him. If he is your Lord and Savior, then make sure you care for that relationship above all others. And after that, prioritize what is important in your life. And never, never lose focus of your important relationships. So be generous with your time and money, and a lot of relational issues will be resolved. And by the way, it's not too late to mend fractured relationships. Any friends you haven't spoken to in a while because of your pride, parents whom you disrespected, and teachers who you never thanked, just do it. Humble yourself, start a conversation. Have no regrets in the 16th second. In conclusion, this has been one of the hundreds of life lessons I have learned at the King's Academy, and that has been more valuable than academics. So thank you to all who have taken the time to teach each of us our lessons. And once again, thank you to our parents who have been the main source of our lesson learning. We did it, you and us, and we love you for your sacrifice to put us at King's and for putting up with our attitudes along the way. Thank you for sticking with us. When we receive our diploma tonight, just know we all have earned it. And that was Kyle Martin in those words. Well, they're valuable to Christians and non-Christians alike. We brought you speeches from Admiral McRaven. That was Make Your Bed. Denzel Washington, Fall Forward. And this kid, the 16th second. Again, Christian or not. Don't put work, career, or other goals ahead of your relationships. A great message from a wise young man. Kyle Martin's story, his commencement speech here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds, as you well know, about just about everything. And your stories are some of our favorites. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. But our other type of favorite are redemption stories, comeback stories about people who turn their lives around. Which brings us to our next story. We saw it in a great documentary, The Father I Never Knew, a movie that tracks the lives of former gang members who were raised without a positive father figure in their lives. And, by the way, which you can find on Amazon Prime. The director graciously gave us the interviews to tell these stories. And now our own Joey Cortez brings us the story of Leslie Williams from Chicago. Here is Leslie Williams. When I was around 11 years old, I was outside one day and it was my first time ever doing something that I knew was really wrong. A milk truck had pulled up to the neighborhood's general store. We had a store right across the street from us. So this milk truck was delivering milk one day and I decided to go into the milk truck and look in the cab of the milk truck for something to take. Wesley would find something, all too telling, of his future. Looked up under the seat of this milk truck, and there was a, it was a paper bag. And so I took the paper bag and grabbed it real quick, and I ran. And uh, got, we had a little clubhouse we used to go to. And I got to the clubhouse, and when I opened the bag up, amazingly, there was a gun in the bag. It was a big gun. Now, being young as I was, I can't remember, I, remember, I think it was a 38 Smith & Weston, a big one. And so I saw the gun, I said, wow, a gun, you know. And so I was a bit afraid because I'd never had a gun. And I always knew that a gun was something that you shoot people with. So I was like, wow, I don't know, what am I going to do with this gun? So at that age, I took that gun to my father. My father looked at the gun. He said, where'd you get it from? I told him I found it. I found the gun. It had bullets in the bag as well. So I said, I found this. He, he said, oh, okay. And he looked at the gun and then he says, uh, where'd you find it at? I said, oh, it was out, outside in the yard, you know, in, one, in the yard across the street. And so, you know, I was lying, you know, about it. And so my father took the gun. He said, well, okay, I'm going to take the gun. I, I don't worry about the gun no more. That's all he said. Don't worry about the gun no more. But you be careful out there. Don't be doing it wrong. In my spirit at that time, I didn't feel it was wrong because he didn't take it very seriously of what I was doing. You know, and he kept the gun. He didn't say, we're going to turn it into the police or anything like that, which is the right thing to do, right? So now I get the impression that it's not so bad what I'm doing. You know, things are not so bad. So this is the, 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 you know, so I wasn't corrected or anything about it except for just be careful. My father, I just believe at that time he should have said the right thing to do is to turn it into the police. But he kept the gun. He never turned it into the police. So from that point on, I figured the stealing was easy. It was an easy thing to steal. So I started stealing. The neighborhood store across the street from me, I used to go in there and steal cakes, pies, everything. And so 
I figured stealing was, you know, it was something you do as long as you didn't get caught. You're okay. I didn't know if you would go to jail for stealing a cake or pie or something like that. I didn't know. And then in the neighborhood, they had these gangs. I was trying to recruit guys. And so I can remember where they used to always chase me to, you know, recruit me. And uh, a couple of times they jumped on me, you know, they beat me up and things like that, trying to recruit me in the gangs. I never did get recruited. So one day I just decided I was tired of getting beat up. And so I went to the gang and I told him, I said, man, I want to join. And I, I joined this little gang at the time. What was attractive about the gang was that the gang was like a family. It became like a, it, it, uh, an intimacy. Uh, we would talk, we would do things together, we would eat together, we'd go, we'd go steal food and we'd eat it together. It was more like they, they, they were my brothers. They became a family of brothers. And, and like with my brother at home, we were never close now. We were never hanging together. So the gang was giving it to me. And then not only that, they were giving me like protection because they would fight for me. If somebody did something to me, that gang would bag me up. He would come out, they would come and say, man, you know, you don't mess with him. He's one of ours. And so it was almost like this protection, this security there. And then on top of that, all the benefits, you know, of if you stole something, you know, we all shared it and, you know, and things like that. So, and then it was a belonging. I belonged to something. But we were going around and we were fighting another gang, I remember. And so one day they taught me how to make a zip gun. I don't, I don't know people today don't even know, probably don't even know what a zip gun is. But it's a gun. It's actually a 22 pistol you make out of wood, rubber bands, and tape. And so I made a zip gun. I, used to, I became real good at making these zip guns when I was little. I used to give them to the, to the members in the gang. Look, I made a zip gun. He said, man, this thing, he said, man, this is a gun. He said, zip gun, do it work? I said, yeah, it worked, man, be careful. Cause you would pull it, you would pull, you know a door latch that you pull over and lock like this? So you would make it out of that door latch. You would put that door latch on, but you would put these rubber bands on the latch handle. And when you pull it back, you lock it like this. On the end of that, of that, of that, of the wood, would be an antenna barrel, the biggest one. And it was big enough where you could put a 22 bullet through it. So you would put that on there and tape that barrel. And so when you put the bullet into the end of that barrel, you, if you want to shoot it, you just push the latch up and that rubber band pull it and hit the back of the bullet and it, and it pop, it shoots. I started making them with handles you know, you can hold a handle like this and just hit it with your thumb and shoot somebody, pow, like that. So zip guns was the thing back then. So this is how I began the life of crime. My first adult incarceration, I was about 16 and a half, and I had committed a crime, armed robbery. They sent me to the county jail, the Cook County Jail. Well, about two weeks I was going to become 17, so they said we're going to try him as an adult because in two weeks he'll be 17 years old. I went to the Cook County Jail, and I never would forget coming through those doors. The Cook County Jail was like a graduation into a lot of traumatization. 
I mean, things was going to begin to change now. It wasn't, I wasn't a little boy anymore in the streets. Now, I was a man, had to stand on my own going to the Cook County Jail. Before I was sent to actual prison, convicted, I had done 11 months in the county jail for that, for that crime. And then I got convicted of it. Everybody used to go all to all the nice institutions, and it just seemed like the Lord would permit me to go to nice institutions. I would go to some of the notorious prisons it was. The first prison that I ever set foot in at it was the age of 17 was Statesville. Statesville. Statesville Penitentiary. Now, Statesville Penitentiary was a place if you went, you had to really gun up. Gun up means this here. You had to get your gloves together. You have to get you a couple of knives. And you have to stand in that prison. You have to fight for your life. You have to defend your life. Because down there in Statesville Penitentiary, it was not controlled by the officers who were in charge, the guards. It was controlled by the inmates. The inmates had clout. They had authority to have your cell open if they wanted it open to uh, do whatever they wanted to do to you. Guys were getting stabbed uh, multiple times on the yard. And when we go out to recreation, uh, guys were getting thrown off of four-tier galleries. A hit would just bust wide open. And it was terrible. And my goodness, what an original voice. Leslie makes us understand clearly why in places where there aren't a lot of dads or a dad like his who really didn't weigh in on just how terrible it is to not turn a gun you find on the street into the local police. And by the way, he also makes it clear why young people join gangs. My goodness, it's not just the, the camaraderie, the protection, the security... It's a sense of belonging to something, he said. A sense of belonging to something. When we come back, more of this unique voice, a Chicago story, a redemption story. Leslie Williams' story continues here on Our American Story. back with Our American Stories, and we return to Leslie Williams' story, a man who grew up in Chicago in the 60s and 70s, joined a gang, and wound up in prison. Let's return to his story. When I got out from that year and year and a day, I didn't learn anything. My, my, my relationship with my father, it, it had not strengthened. They stayed married for a while, but they would argue and they would fight. And my dad would always get drunk and uh, fight my mother. And I remember that, you know, it was never time for my dad and I to sit down or my dad to sit down and talk with me. Leslie was desperate for that fatherly direction. After impregnating his girlfriend and returning to a life of crime, he went back to prison several more times 
and found himself in another notorious institution, the Pontiac Correctional Center. Pontiac, it was a very notorious prison. They call it the Thunderdome. It was a prison where lots of murders took place and everything. So I went to Pontiac on that. When I got down to Pontiac, the prison was also ran partially by the inmates. I got out of Pontiac. After getting out after those four years, I still didn't learn anything. When I was in that prison, at one point in time, I became what they call a prestigious guy. My cell stayed open. When other guys' cells were locked, my cell stayed open. So now I really think I'm a big shot now. You know, everybody, uh, I'm with the big guys. Their cells staying open, mine's staying open. And so I became to the point where I became a prestigious guy. You know, the officers would respect me and, and look up to me and say, well, you know, he, he's one of the big guys in the, in the organization. So I became uh, uh, big-headed in that sense. And uh, so that made me not want to change. This is 1989. I started wondering about my life. What is my life going to be like? You know, I can't continue to go the way I'm going, you know, and do the things I'm doing. And, and it seems more that God was showing me so much mercy and grace because all of the guys who came up with me, uh, most of them were dying away. They were either getting killed or, you know, found dead somewhere. But here I am still living. So I started questioning my life. What, is, what am I going to do? So one day I was sitting in my cell. I never would forget. It was a guy who had a natural life sentence. He never was going to get parole. His name was Von Washington. And it was something about this guy, Von Washington Peanut. He used to smile all the time. He was very happy. But this guy was never going to get out. But here's I'm ready to get, I'm about to get out in about another year and a half. And this guy is very happy. I mean, this guy is just all the time happy. So I asked him one day, I was sitting in my cell, I was painting. I used to do art and sculpturing. And uh, Von Washington, he, used to, he came past. And he wanted me to come to the church and support him, and, you know, watch him sing. He made a statement. He said, if you come, You'll be glad you did. When I went to that church, it was January 15th, 1989. It was Martin Luther King's birthday. I went to that church, and there was a guy giving a testimony. He had just got delivered from gangs, and he was a notorious Spanish gang leader. He was talking about his conversion and how Jesus Christ had changed his life and, and how that now, he said he used to be the leader of the Latin kings. Now he served the king of kings. And he said, we used to fight against the Latin lords and now I serve the Lord of lords right now. He said, I've never met. He said, now the disciples running around here with gang tattoos on them, calling themselves disciples. I'm a disciple of Christ now. And this guy was talking so powerfully, so confident, so uh, radical about his change. It fired me up in the inside. It made me question, say, man, if God can change him, he can change you. He can change you right now. It's time for a change. 
This guy used to kill people. He was murdering people. If God can change him, you can change. Man, I got so fired up, man. Right when they got ready to do the altar call, before they was finished with it, I, I was sprung up on my feet, running with my hands in the air saying, I'm, I'm ready, I'm tired. I'm tired, of, I'm tired, that's all I can remember says, I'm tired, I'm ready, me. And the guy was like, he wasn't even done with the altar call. And I was up on my feet running. Everybody was looking at me because, you know, I was one of the guys in the, in the prison who, who was looked up to as a tough guy. And here they see this tough guy running down out crying with tears, saying he's done, he's tired. And from that day forward, that's when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I accepted Jesus on January the 15th, 1989. Now, let me tell you something. I had never read a Bible in my entire life. Never. I didn't know what the process was for being uh, born again or changed or anything. But something in my soul immediately sprung up and asked me to asked this chaplain, he was standing there when I, when I came to receive Christ. I said, Dona, right after I received Christ and confessed Christ, I turned around and said, Don't I need to be baptized? Now that was something I, I, I know was from God because I didn't know anything about that that's what you had to do, is be baptized. But that sprung up out of my lips to that, to that chaplain. I said, Don't I need to be baptized? I was ready for everything that God had to offer me for a change. And I can remember when I, during the time of my baptism, they baptized me in that chapel. Uh, there in Pontiac prison, I was baptized. I can remember them taking a plastic garbage bag and punching a hole in the bottom of it and pull it over me and had me take off everything but my, but my brief underwear to do the baptism. And, and we, I would walk down into this tank to be baptized. And that water was cold. Man, that water was really cold because I only had my brief underwear on. And, and I was shaking. I was like, wow. But I tell you one thing. I, I'd say this with all my heart. And, and God being the witness of this is that when I went into that water, they were singing this song called Wade in the Water. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children. And then they say, God's going to trouble the water. I hear them singing, right? So when I go down into this water while they're singing, something strange happened that I didn't, you know, I didn't know at the time. I come up out of the water and that was a sensation I felt like I never felt ever before in my whole life. And I hear these guys singing and they were like, they were like angels singing around me. It was like angels singing around me. And my goodness, what storytelling. 1989, he remembers, he was just wondering about his own life. And there was this one guy, this one inmate who'd been serving a life sentence, Von Washington, and he was always happy. What's that guy got that I don't have? I'm about to get out of prison, and I'm miserable. And all Von Washington said to him is, if you come to church and watch me sing, you'll be glad you did. January 15th, 1989, it was Martin Luther King's birthday. 
And as we like to point out, it's the Reverend King, not just Dr. King. And he said, I watched the notorious leader of the Latin Kings, and that's a, a Latin gang of Bloods and Crips for Latinos. And he started talking about serving the King of Kings. And the guy who was talking confidently and radically, Leslie recalled, if God can change him, he can change me. I'm tired, I'm ready. What powerful words, what a powerful testimony. When we continue, Leslie Williams' story continues too, here on Our American Story. to the final portion of Leslie Williams' story here on Our American Stories. The former gang member was in and out of prison for most of his early adult life. Leslie expected to be in prison the rest of his life until he had an awakening. His friends in prison were getting murdered, and he asked himself, is this what I want? Soon after, at a prison mate's request, Leslie attended church, and that would change his life forever. Let's return to the story. We left off with Leslie getting baptized in prison. I felt so clean. I felt like the whole world was behind me now. Everything I did, well, it didn't matter anymore. I just felt like that I would, you know, I felt a new person. I'm finally out, I'm finally free. I was due to get out of that prison about a year and a half. And I had nowhere to go. So, you could write certain ministries and things like that, uh, you know, that would help you when you got out. And I knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back to the same area. I just didn't want to go back to the same neighborhood. I, it was a change in me to say, I don't, you don't need to go back there. You need to go somewhere different. You need to go somewhere where you can get some help when you get out. So I started writing all these institutions that was available at that time, all these ministries rather, that was supposed to help you when you got out. I went to Salvation Army, I wrote uh, all kind of ministries, uh, post-prison ministries uh, that's supposed to help you. I must have wrote probably uh, 30 different place, places. One that was included was called the Corner Near House National Ministries. I didn't get not one other response besides from Corner Near House National Ministries. This man named Manny Mill wrote me, we thank you for your interest in the ministry. We are a young ministry and we, we love to help men who are being released from prison, trying to help you stay out so you won't go back. He came down to visit me. We were in that visiting room and we had that visiting room fired up, man, with the, with the Lord. He was talking to me about Jesus. I was talking to him about the Lord and my conversion, and he was so excited. And then he said, Leslie, I'm going to send you a letter and uh, let you know uh, about our decision, okay? He wrote me back and he says, based off of your testimony, based off of uh, your need, he said, we have to accept you in the corner of your house because you seem to be a perfect candidate 
for the Kundalini House National Ministries. We believe we can help you and so forth and so on. So from that point on, after roughly over 25 years of incarceration, I was released onto the Cornelia House National Ministries. When I went to the Cornelia House, I met some of the mentors that were there at that time. These people were getting involved in the helping men. They supplied me with clothing. They supplied me with a mentor, a social mentor, where I would go out and these people would teach me how to live in society. So it was a lot of things that they taught me, like life skills. They had the four pillars, uh, biblical discipleship, life skill training, and then they had a financial mentor and spiritual mentor. All of these, these were the four pillars of Cornelia House National Ministries that they would teach you. Oh, I'm sorry, affordable housing was one. It was four pillars. The affordable housing, because we would, once we got a job, we would have to take uh, like $350 of our money a month and and give it to the ministry and this was for you know like paying rent they had to teach us how to be responsible uh, now I'm uh, rather than me being uh, a minister society I'm a product of society now I have to become involved now now uh, instead of me being against the police I'm with the police now I got to be with the police I can't go against them now because now what I'm changed today now I'm involved in Corner Near House National Ministries. I'm on the support team for the uh, inmates that are getting out of prison, out of Corner Near House prison. I'm on their support team. I help support those inmates. I minister to them when, they, when they're out, trying to instill values, help instill values into their lives. Uh, when I see young men that, that are fatherless, they don't have fathers. They, had, they didn't have fathers who were instilling values in their life, who would, who would tell them right from wrong or, or, or try to encourage them in their life. So now what I do, I became their father. I became like a father figure to many of the young men who come through now, being able to encourage them to look unto the Father of heaven now and get surroundings of men, men of God, who, who, who can help uh, give you testimonies about how they made it now and how important it is to be obedient to your father in heaven as well as your father here on earth if you ever meet him if you ever come back into bloom with your father don't be angry at your father because your father wasn't there because you got to look back you got to think back his father probably never taught him something leslie was all too familiar with and something he tried to mend with his own son when I was 17 years old, I can remember uh, getting a, a lady, a young lady pregnant who had a son of mine. I didn't even know how to love my, my little child because I was never taught how to love him. You know, I was never taught. My father never loved me. You know, he never sat down and you just, so it was love was never a part of my teaching. So it wasn't that I didn't want to love my son. I didn't know how. And so my son grew up not having a father as well. I wasn't around him until the age of 27, he came and visited me. That was the only time I could remember seeing him as an adult. But he started getting involved in the music industry, or the rap, the rap industry. 
to, to my understanding, he became very influential. Very, very influential with rap, and, which I didn't know it until later, later on uh, when he was murdered. He was murdered, yeah. He got murdered by some gang members, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, when I first learned of his murder, they said the gang, one of the gang members was a producer of a studio uh, in Detroit. And at the age of 27, he came up once to visit me. And at that time, I was the head of the deacon board in the church. And I'll never would forget that Sunday, it was time to go to church. And my son saw me dressing up on that Sunday and he said, and he, he was up visiting me for a few weeks. He said, Dad, where are you going? I said, I'm going to church. He said, I want to go too. And I said, well, I didn't know you wanted to go. I didn't want to force it on you. He said, no, Dad, I want to go also. He said, I don't want to stay here. He asked me, you think these clothes are all right? I said, don't worry. I can give you something to wear if you, if you don't feel comfortable. So I never will forget that I put one of my, I let him put on one of my suits and it fit him just exactly right. I mean, it just fit him perfectly. And he was like, Dad, this is a nice suit. I like this suit. When I saw him, he was a spitting image of me. He was a spitting image of me. I mean, in looks and everything. Uh, when I met him then. Now, he never wore, when I, when I met him then, he never dressed a lot. He never wore suits like me. You know, because I, I love to wear suits and I love to dress really nice. He never wore that. He was, he was, but I think my influence went on him because he saw me going to church and I had all these suits and he, and you know, he wanted to be like his dad, you know? That's the good thing about a son. When they see their father really doing well, they want to be like their dad. Now that's why it's so important that, that, that fathers not project the wrong image to their sons. Don't, you know, because some sons see their father, they drug dealers and they riding around in big cars and they say, I want to be like my dad. But I'm not talking about it in this way. I'm talking about it in a good way. My son was influenced by me when he finally saw me at the age of 27 in a good way. He wanted to go to church. He wanted to follow his dad. Before he was murdered, he was singing. Prior to his murder, he was singing like this gangster rap, they call it. And uh, his brother, I, I heard news that he had uh, changed and went back to gospel singing, gospel rapping before he was murdered. And that pleased me because of the fact that I know that he was, he's with the Lord. And you've been listening to the voice of Leslie Williams. What a powerful story. And a special thanks to Dan Gilbert, the director of The Father I Never Knew, where we got that source material, that audio you were listening to. And you can find the entire documentary, The Father I Never Knew, on Amazon Prime. A special thanks also to Joey Cortez for finding this great story and bringing it to you. I just have to recount some of the words after that baptism. I felt so clean. I felt like new. I was finally free. And my goodness... Don't we all sometimes need to feel like we can put the past behind us? I had nowhere to go. I didn't want to go back to the same neighborhood. And lucky for him, the grace of a mission 
and the mercy of people who gave not only their money but their time to lend a hand and to lend not just spiritual guidance but practical guidance, day-to-day life guidance on how to, well, how to be a man in the modern world. And my goodness, the mentors helped him, and then it became his life, helping young men coming out of prison, coming off the same streets, experiencing just what he'd experienced. I want to become a father figure to those young men, he said. My goodness, it doesn't get better. One of our favorite redemption stories, the story of Leslie Williams, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know, including your stories, which you can send to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And up next, part one of our two-part story with one of the most extraordinary leaders in education, Laura Sandifer, along with her husband Jeff, is the co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created schools across the world. She's also the author of a book, Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. Here's part one of my conversation with Laura on the story of the Acton Academy. We were just living our very ordinary lives. I was a mom with two young boys and an an elementary-aged daughter, and Jeff was working away. And we had hit the point where we had to make a decision about where the youngest would go to elementary school. They were in a Montessori school. And our daughter was at a traditional private elementary school and she was thriving. She was doing well, but Jeff decided he wanted to go and talk to her math teacher about when we should move our young boys from Montessori into a more traditional setting because we were having to make that decision. And the math teacher said, well, as soon as possible. And Jeff said, well, what do you mean? And the teacher said, the longer they stay in an environment where they have freedom to choose their work, the harder it's going to be for them to sit at a desk all day and be talked to. And so just move them as soon as you can. And Jeff was like, you know what? We're not going to do that. (laughs) And he came home that day and he said, Laura, we're done. We're done with school. And I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, we're either going to homeschool or we'll build our own school. And I thought to myself, there's no way I can homeschool. I could not take on the challenge of being my children's mom and coach and teacher. That just wasn't part of my realm of thinking. I wanted to do the adventurous idea of attracting a small community and we could build something brand new. Jeff and I both had dabbled in education in different ways. I had gone to get my master's in education and ended up being an arts educator. And Jeff had gone into entrepreneurship education and was teaching at the higher ed level. And we both felt really strongly that there were some great practices out there. But what was currently available to us was not anything that would help our children function in their futures, which is a future none of us can really imagine. They needed to be innovators and thinkers and entrepreneurs themselves and create their own way. So we decided just to start experimenting. And that was the beginning of Acton Academy. It really was just a little idea to solve our own problem in our own backyard. And we had no idea anyone would trust us enough to follow us or join us. We ended up with a merry band of five other families in a small rented space in Austin, Texas. 
And we drew from the very, very old and the very, very new. So we call ourselves the one-room schoolhouse for the 21st century because it's a one-room schoolhouse in the sense that there's no grade levels. It's mixed ages, all teaching each other. And we don't have a teacher, we have a guide. Another piece of the very, very old is the Socratic method and apprenticeships. So that hands-on learning under a master, but also the idea that questions are so much more powerful than lectures or just reading textbooks. And we injected those very old ideals with the new online learning programs that were becoming very user-friendly at the time. This was over 10 years ago. And so we knew that we could inject some of the current technology with some of those old ideas and see what would happen. And we also know we were small enough to experiment and we were flying under the radar, which was really fun. We didn't have to answer to anybody. So we literally were just building the airplane as we were flying it and it was working. The children were engaged. They were taking charge of their learning and we were just being surprised every day by how capable children are when you set them free to learn at their own pace and with some real world problems that they were given to solve. So for example, we had the core skills which is reading, writing, and math, and they would work independently on that. And then another chunk of the day, we built quests, which were hands-on projects, but that were built around a real world problem to solve. They were building businesses, or they were having to put on a play and attract an audience, or they were having to make a model of a city have electricity, so they were solving problems that they cared about, and suddenly there was a real energy and a joy about this little school, this building that we were in, and people were hearing, wow, there's kids over there who are love going to school. And at that point, people started wanting to see what we were doing, and that's when things changed pretty dramatically for us. And you said an interesting word is it related to education, and that's the word joy, Laura, and also surprise. There's a great quote where you say, I'd rather be surprised than be right. Yes, I started this as someone who wanted to be right. I wanted the children to do well on tests so that I could prove what we were doing was working. I came from a background of public traditional schools, and I could tell you I could work the system. I could get straight A's. I didn't want to ever be wrong. I didn't want to get in trouble. I could follow the rules, do what I was told get through with flying color. So that was my mental concept coming into school. And suddenly I realized, oh my goodness, everything I thought I believed in is being blown away by what these children can really do. And tests are a very low bar for measuring learning. So I understood suddenly that being right was far less satisfying than being surprised. And when you're surprised, there's a sense of curiosity and wonder, and it makes you want to keep going. When you're just right, it sort of closes the book and you're done. So I became a new person, frankly, through this Acton Academy journey that was meant for my children. But really, I saw myself becoming the one who was being transformed. I was raised by a pastor and a science teacher. So my mom was the science teacher. My father was the minister. And our childhood was very much of a free range kind of childhood. We were just set out into the streets to play every day and come home when we heard the dinner bell. My father was also very intellectual. So our family dinners were based around deep conversations about things. So the Socratic method was a big part of my family life. 
when I was leaving to go to college, my car was packed and I was sitting in the driveway ready to say goodbye. It was kind of that dramatic moment. And I wanted one last sermon from my dad, one last piece of advice to send me on my way for the rest of my life. So I said, Dad, what message would you want me to carry with me for the rest of my life so that I would have a great life? And he said, oh, Laura, that's easy. Two words, be curious. And with that, he sent me on my way. And when we come back, more with Laura Sandifer. Her story of the Acton Academy continues after these commercial messages. continue with Our American Stories and with Laura Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy and author of Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. And by the way, Acton Academy is a network of over 270 parent-created schools across the world and growing. Let's return to Laura on her dad's advice on her departure to college, which was only two words, be curious. That message haunted me because I thought, gosh, I thought I was going to get, you know, a 20 minute, pretty deep conversation. And all he wants me to be is curious. So this man who I respect more than anyone uh, uh, in terms of how he lives life just wants me to be curious. And by the way, you're very lucky that you had a pastor dad. And by the way, most people would not, not equate this charge that he gave to you with what a pastor would charge a kid, which is be curious. He didn't say be faithful. He said be curious. What a remarkable thing to have a dad who's both a pastor and a believer, but a questioner too. Yeah, that's, that's one of my, my favorite things about him is he finds such joy in the doubting and in the questioning of everything. And he always, as a pastor's kid, we were never told what to believe at all. We were told to question things. And so I think that is a unique take. As I went on through my life, I realized he gave me truly the ticket to leading a life that is full of learning and meaning. When you're curious, you're constantly living in that state of surprise and wonder, and the learning really, truly never ends. One thing we say at Acton Academy is no experts allowed. Now, that's sort of contrarian to most of education where everybody wants an expert in the room, and I have had many people tell me children can't learn without an expert in the room. The truth is they can. Why we say that? Now, we believe in experts. Experts are wonderful. We need them in the world. But in terms of an environment for young children, we want them to continue to question everything and not go to someone who has all the answers and deliver them the answers. We want them to have to seek for the best teachers, seek for the best experts in the world, and then continue to question everything that they learn. So it's that drive for curiosity, for being surprised and being in a state of wonderment rather than just getting the answers right on a test or in a discussion. So a student-driven environment where the students are in control, and by the way, there are, there are systems set up. So for anybody listening, it's not like the kids just do whatever they want all day long, but it's a student-driven environment. And I want to read something because It has to do with the adults and how the adults manage this student-driven environment. I did not fully understand, and this is you speaking, I did not fully understand the leap I would have to make in my own mind and heart to trust the children to handle struggles and even suffer 
in order to grow into highly functioning, intelligent, kind humans. It will be a full decade before the urgency of this lesson would hit home. So it took you a while, and I think probably any parent, to surrender like this in a strange way. And it is an act of surrender in some way, isn't it? It it really is. And I still, to this day, have to stop myself from intervening. My sons are now 18 and 17 years old, and our daughter is 24. And there are times when I actually still want to step in and take away struggle from them. But there were several poignant moments in this journey that taught me those lessons of the idea that struggle is where the beauty in the human experience comes. And in fact, it was a sort of a magical twist to me. We base everything at Acton Academy on the hero's journey. So that's the framework, the narrative that literally runs through every single thing we do. And the hero's journey is just that archetypical series of adventures. It's that framework of the grand myth that every human really yearns to experience. And that's why the best stories follow the template of the hero's journey. And it's the idea of you leave your place of comfort. There's a call to adventure. And at first you refuse it, but then it haunts you and you meet a mentor and finally you say yes. But along the way you meet monsters and you have to battle monsters. And there's a road of trials. You meet fellow travelers and you're hunting for that holy grail, that, that treasure And then you have to enter the cave where the treasure is, and that's the grand battle. Finally, you get the treasure and you return home a changed person. This this storyline, this narrative actually really speaks to some truth about the human experience, that we all long to do something meaningful. And children resonate with this so much. But the truth of the hero's journey is in the battle, is in the struggle, is in the suffering. And we use the word passion a lot. We toss that word around a lot in this world, in this society. And what I've learned is that passion really gets back to the the Latin roots of that word is about suffering and it's about sacrifice. And that doesn't mean it's worth it. That's actually what makes it worth it. And it's a choice. So people shy away from suffering and struggle, but it's only through that that you find the treasure that's within yourself. And I saw that happening with my sons. And I saw that happening with parents and with myself. It's the pain of letting go, the pain of watching someone suffer, which is actually a little piece of yourself when you watch your child struggling through something. But I realized that accepting that is a key to freedom in life. And feeling free is probably why there is joy within the walls of an Acton Academy. So it's not hiding away from struggle or failure or suffering, we actually call that up and acknowledge it. No one wants it. No one wants to fail. No one wants to suffer. But yet through that experience, we can get through it to the other side. And that's where discovery happened. And I've had so many stories. One one young girl comes to mind. She came and, and her mom, she was six years old and her mom said she she doesn't speak and she, she doesn't have opinions. And my desire is for her to find her voice. Well, it was true. We went through about two years where this young, wonderful girl never spoke. Then there was one of our discussions, and we'd have Socratic discussions every day, twice a day or more every day at Acton. And she answered, and everyone looked, and the young children broke out in applause. 
they were all waiting for her to speak, but no one was forcing her, but it was a celebration of her finding her voice. And then boy, she took off and um, she had a lot to say, but it just took a while. But there was a, there was the silent struggle within her that she just had to embrace and live through. And I, I, she, she was never able to share what that was like, but the moment that she discovered her voice, was a moment of true treasure finding for all of us. So the hero's journey, though, is not about the, the physical treasure itself. It truly, every single time, is about how a hero is changed, how that, how that person is transformed through going through something that's challenging. Challenge is a privilege. Yeah, there's a great quote uh, that you share from Madeline Levine, who wrote this in the book, The Price of Privilege. Parents who persistently fall on the side of intervening for their child as opposed to supporting their child's attempts to problem solve interfere with the most important task of childhood and adolescence, the development of a sense of self. And it sounds to me like uh, the Acton Academy at its root is about that discovery. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's all that it really is. And we believe deeply with every cell of of our being that every single child is a genius. Now we get pushback on that. People think that sounds kind of phony and, you know, trite, but the truth is really looking at the definition of genius. It's not just about IQ. In fact, it's not about IQ at all. It's about that unique creative potential that is in every single human. And the, the idea of this journey of the act and learning journey is about discovering your your genius. Now, genius can get covered up and over layers of life and um, labeling. You know, like we've we've talked about people just getting labeled and thinking that they can't do things. But the genius is waiting to be found and discovered. And very often, kind of like a garden, we we consider our studios more like gardens than anything, where the right environment nurtures the right fruit to come out of each human. It's going to be different for everyone. Um, but depending on what they what the needs are of that individual and the space they're given to grow, their genius arises. And it's and that's another surprise. As a parent, we often think we know what our children will be or what they should be. The most amazing stance to take as a parent is to just wait to be surprised. And you've been listening to Laura Sandifer, and you can learn more about Acton Academy and how to launch one or attend one, and that is launch one in your neighborhood at actonacademy.org. And she is so right. She said, no one wants to fail, no one wants to suffer, but on the other side of both, that's where discovery happens. And challenge is indeed a privilege, and we all know it, folks. It's a natural tendency for parents to want to eliminate challenge from our kids' lives. And that's not necessarily the best instinct of a parent. And that they focus on a hero's journey and how challenge transforms the ordinary person into a hero. Oh my goodness, what a good thing for education to do. When we come back, more with Laura Sandifer here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Laura Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, 
a network of over 270 parent-created schools across the world. We return to Laura with a story about a word that's usually not welcome in education, and that word is surprise. One of my favorite stories of an Acton dad, he's become a really good friend and has been with us on this journey for the past 11 years. And his son is one of my son's very best friends. And when they were four five and six years old, this dad was so excited to have a son. He coached all the teams, basketball, baseball, and baseball was his, that was his thing in life. And he was so excited. He envisioned his life with his son going to baseball games. And, and it, you know, he was just on fire with this. He was so happy. And a couple of years into the acting journey, the Eagles, that's our mascot. That's what we call them. The Eagles put on a play. They wrote it. They produced it. They sold the tickets. They sold the confessions. They were on the stage. And after that experience, this young boy decided baseball wasn't his thing. Acting, theater was his thing. And it broke his dad's heart for a little while because it was a loss to him. It, this was not what he had planned. But then after he thought about it a while, he realized his son's journey is not his journey. It's his son's journey. And so he said, if I want to be with my son and have a relationship with him, I need to embrace that. So the two of them, he ended up taking acting lessons and the two of them have been on this amazing journey that's morphed into filmmaking. And it just was this shift in the parent's identity of what this whole relationship was. But I think if parents can free themselves of expectations of who their child is and just wait to be surprised, the journey becomes more magical than stressful. And so much less stressful, not just for the kid, but for the parent in the end, because you'll be fighting your kid their whole lives if you're going to try and turn them into a mini version of yourself. So I wonder, my dad was a lifetime teacher, amazing classroom teacher, all Socratic method, taught history. And then he had the unfortunate uh, experience of having to lead a school system as a superintendent of school and try and reform a public school. And it really was heartbreaking for him. He just could not get things done that he wished he could have in a public school system. But he had a, a poster in his office, and it said, don't ask how smart is the child, ask how is the child smart. And mm. I, I think this is such, it, it gets to what you were saying in, the, in essence. There's genius hidden, but the system of public education and mass education is not interested. It's too hard, actually, bureaucratically. Uh, one teacher, 25 kids, moving them around. It just gets so difficult because it's so impersonal to actually unearth the individual genius of a kid. It's just too hard. Talk about how Acton flips that because in the end, it sounds to me like Acton's all about unearthing that, that hidden potential, letting the kid go on his own journey and ultimately find his own genius. Yes, and the the key radical difference I believe that Acton Academy presents is we push power to the most disenfranchised and powerless in the world, and that's the children. So we really flip that hierarchy upside down, and we have a radical trust and respect for children. In fact, we, we don't even call them children when we're in our studios, we call them heroes or learners because so often just the words we use put in place a, a power structure that we want to strip away in a radical way just to really let the children rise up as being capable of creating their own governance. So there are many systems in the Acton program, 
but they model the real world. So basically the young people creating a civil society and through the Acton systems, there's a real world reflection. So for example, the Acton system using the hero's journey reflects the real world equivalent of just your life story. So everyone has a life story. What is your story? Every, you know, from four years old on up, the children know they are living and writing their own story. We have learning arcs, which are basically schedules that go in in an arc with a landing from the daily to weekly to sessionly. And those are basically just your, your habits, your habits that you have every day, every week and every year. And then an acting system is a servant leader badge. So these young people are, are earning badges in leadership to serve each other. But all of this is bound by contracts that they write for each other. So just like in a civil society, you have a constitution and voluntary contracts, our acting eagles function on the promises they make to each other. And there's an honor code and there's an an economic system called Eagle Bucks, where they earn money and they can buy more free time. I mean, that's truly a mini civil society. And what this does is it pushes the adults away from the center of the learning experience. Now we have a guide in the studios and they're physically there to mentor and hold the boundaries as needed. But the, the children are trusted to run their community. Now, this does mean that it's Lord of the Flies some days. This is not utopia. I always want to say this, and this is not for everyone. But what it does show is when you push power to children, they feel empowered and they they carry responsibility with a great seriousness. And when you mix that with freedom, that they're able to make choices in their day of how they want to learn and when they want to do different things and how they hold each other accountable and deliver consequences, they rise up truly like heroes, and they take it very seriously. There are lots of misconceptions about this, though, that, you know, children are running around and hanging from trees, or that we have some arbitrary authority that comes in when things get bad. So, you know, there's a spectrum that we fall in the middle of. We're not total chaos all the time, but and we're, it, we're not strict control ever. It, it, it just fluctuates between those two based on how the children are making their decisions. But I think it's important also to say that, you know, hierarchy does have a purpose. And it, it's a natural part of human society to have hierarchies. And the big school systems, I mean, that's a, that's a totally different scenario. And there was a purpose for the outcome of, of how our traditional schools were set up. But what we want our young people to learn is that choosing who your authority is is really important. So not blindly following authority, but questioning it and finding what authentic authority will you really follow in your life? Because you will have an authority. And so it's that constant decision and making around who is your authority? What is your authority? And we actually talk about that a lot. We have a Lord Acton, who Acton Academy is named after, was a Victorian scholar who was constantly questioning, can a free society also be virtuous? And one of his most famous quotes is, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we're constantly within our studios questioning power and how power tends to corrupt. And children see it in their own, you know, in their own battles within their own mini societies that, yeah, some people do have more power than others, but they get to work that out and then finally figure out 
who they're going to choose to be their authority in their life. At this point, their, their contract that they write to each other is their authority. It's not an adult in the front of the room telling them what to do. It's the promises that they made to each other and they each have to sign off on that and we come back to that frequently. And you're listening to Laura Sandifer and she's the author of the book, Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down, which you can buy at amazon.com and you can learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood at actonacademy.org. And I just love what she had said about power. We push power to the most disenfranchised and powerless people around our children. And I love that they, they don't use the word children at the school, but rather the word hero or learner. And my goodness, it's something we love talking about on this show. And that is both the infantilization of so much of American society and so many of us wanting to, to turn our young people into young adults and good adults and virtuous adults. That's the concern of so many of the listeners to this show and to so many American parents. When we come back, more with Laura Sandifer, her own hero's journey in a way here on Our American Story. We continue with Our American Stories and with Laura Sandifer's story, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with her husband, Jeff. And Acton Academy is a network of over 270 parent-created schools across the world. Let's return to Laura now on a mini-revolution that took place in their family's Acton School. So we started our middle school a few years after our elementary school. So the elementary school had been up and running for I think it was four years before we started a brand new middle school. And they were right next door to each other in these temporary buildings. And our youngest eagles in the elementary school had been functioning under their contract for years. And they had this strong identity of what Acton Academy was. And their standards of excellence are really, really high. They want to be exceptional. They know this is special and they hold they hold up all of that very seriously. Now, we brought in new people for our middle school from different schools, and they, they were not accustomed to the ethos around Acton Academy. One of the very basic things is our cleanup at the end of the day. So we don't have janitors. The students actually clean up. We call it studio maintenance. They literally scrub the toilets, vacuum the floor, empty the trash. Well, the, the new middle school students their place was pretty trashed. <laughs> and it was just that simple observation of the, the younger students looking into the middle school and just saying, that's not okay. And so my son, my older son was actually in the middle school at the time. My younger son, Sam, was still in the elementary school. He came home one day and he's like, we need to, we cannot have a middle school. It's not working out at all. They are not acting academy. And we said, well, Sam, go solve the problem. Go figure out what to do. So yeah, the elementary school, they wrote up a petition and they told the middle school that they were going to basically take over the middle school unless they changed their ways. And that actually shook up the middle schoolers a lot because they did not want to have seven-year-olds in their studio being in charge of them. So slowly over time, they started adopting the same standards of excellence, but there, there's always that kind of back and forth of young people holding each other accountable. And that's why I get 
very excited about the no grade level mixed age group setting because it's not based on age what your skills necessarily are. So very often a seven-year-old is better at something than a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old and vice versa. So that, that was an example of the younger eagles rising up as leaders and really holding the older ones accountable to the fire. And it caused a shift in the middle school in a big way because they wanted those little kids out of their out of their space. <laughs> so that that worked out well. But, you know, not every example works out really well. But that was one that ended up being a good example of um, young people leading each other. Talk about uh, a setback just for the family, because it had to be really heartbreaking for, to have one of your sons at a certain point say, this isn't for me. By the way, there are some parents this isn't for. But you had your son say, hey, folks, this Acton Academy thing, it's not for me. Yeah, so Charlie, who was our first Acton Eagle, went to our elementary school and our middle school. It was time for us to create our high school. He would be the first student in the high school. And Jeff, that was Jeff's baby, this high school creation. And it's something we had been looking forward to and working towards. Charlie came into my bedroom one morning. It was still dark outside, and I'll never forget it. He walked in. At this point, he's almost six feet tall. He's grown up, and it's just before his what would be his freshman year. And he said, Mom, I want to go somewhere else to high school. And I said, okay, let's not tell Dad about this quite yet because I just needed to get my thoughts together. And he said, okay. So I spent that day just in a bit of a – Uh, funk because this was not what we had planned. We were creating this really for Charlie. I mean, obviously Charlie and Sam, but Sam was younger. So Charlie was the first, the first one to go through it. And here he was wanting to leave. And I thought we failed. Everything we've worked for is over. He doesn't even want it anymore. And so that night I decided we needed to tell Jeff And we told Jeff, Charlie wants to go somewhere else to high school. Well, Jeff did not take it well. He said, I'm not going to have anything to do with that, basically. I will not pay for him to go anywhere else. And then he shut down. And two weeks passed without Jeff talking to us, frankly. It was a really lonely time for me because I wanted to stand up for Charlie, frankly. This was an important decision for him. And I really did trust him to make decisions for himself. At the same time, I I really was suffering a grieving loss of thinking that Acton was a mistake. So I went through the process of we had to start doing the interviews and the applications, and Charlie got accepted into a private high school that was basically the opposite of Acton Academy, a wonderful school, but a classical Christian, you know, wear your uniforms, the adult authority is the ultimate authority in the room, lots of tests, college prep stuff. And Jeff was still quiet about this. And I also hadn't told anyone in our acting community that Charlie was leaving. One day, Jeff came home and the boys and I were sitting on the couch and he walked in and sat next to Charlie and put his arm around him and said, Charlie, I have done a lot of thinking. I am going to support you in your journey to go elsewhere. And at that point, I just was so relieved because I thought, phew, now at least we can do this together. So long story short, Charlie left Acton. He went to this other school. 
the, the Acton parents were actually really supportive and wonderful for me. They said it would be hard for for a child to go to high school where his parents were the principal and the teacher, and they were supportive. And so Charlie, I would have to drive him, you know, 30 minutes each way to school. He would have his gigantic backpack and his uniform on. It wasn't more than two months that I started seeing a difference in Charlie. He had lots of homework for one thing, which Acton, we, we don't have any homework. So he would disappear into his room But his love of reading was diminishing, I noticed. He was just carrying around one book, and it was a book that was an assigned book, and he was slogging through it. Well, Charlie was a reader. He had always been a reader. He was always reading lots and lots and lots of books. But over a period of six months, I think he read one required book. I also noticed he was getting quieter and quieter on our trips home. He was a child who was a paraglider also. He got a paragliding license at, a, at age 13, and he loved to go fly. And Acton was a place where you could take days off. We didn't have attendance policies. Well, Charlie was suddenly very nervous about being late or missing school. He would tell me, I'm going to go down a grade level if I miss one more day of school. So I was just noticing these changes in him. He would ask for instructions about how to do simple things in the house. I'm like, Charlie, you don't figure that out. You can figure things out. So it was, things were shifting and changing. We were plugging along with Acton, but I was sad inside because I felt like I was living a dual life. I was, you know, head of school at Acton Academy doing all that. And then I'd go pick up Charlie and I'd have to face those parents and and those administrators and, and be all in on that game too. Charlie and Jeff took a spring break trip with a friend one of Jeff's friends, and it was a man who Charlie admired as, a, as an entrepreneur. The three of them went off on a spring break, and when they came back, I noticed something different in Charlie once again, but it wasn't a negative difference. It was a positive difference. Suddenly, I saw that sparkle in his eye come back, and he seemed, he seemed really excited, and I thought, you know, it's because he's been flying, and I just know he needs to do what he loves to do, and now he's back on track. So the next day, we took him to school again, and it was that afternoon he went bouncing into the house because we saw Jeff's car in the driveway and he knew Jeff was home. And I just hung around outside getting the mail and it took me a while to get in the house. When I walked in the door, Jeff popped up and came over to me and he said, Charlie's back. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he wants to come back to Acton. And I, at that point, the tears started flowing and Jeff and I just started hugging each other. Charlie had realized on that spring break trip that he was wasting his time. He said to Jeff and his friend that he had found himself starting to watch the clock. He would watch the clock to see when his class would be finished. He would watch the clock to see when the weekend was coming. And he was tired of watching the clock. He didn't want to waste time anymore. So at that point, he came back and he's been thriving at Acton Academy. In fact, he graduates um, this year. He's going to Georgia Tech to get his degree in aeronautical engineering. He loves flying. He's gotten his pilot's license. And I think he just needed to break away from us and to test the waters of what it felt like to be in a traditional setting. Could he do it? I think he felt insecure about if he could learn in a traditional way, like all of his other friends from other schools were doing. And so he tested himself and he he passed the test for himself and he realized he, he, can, he can make decisions. He can learn in that setting, but more than anything, he just wanted to do something meaningful with his life. And it was going to be a waste of his time to sit in classrooms for the next three years. So 
I'm excited for him to launch into the world. I will miss him deeply, but I fully trust that he is following his heart and he's going to be fine and he feels confident in himself. And to me, that's really all I want is for my children to feel confident in themselves and not not inept, that they can actually do hard things and make good decisions. And you've been listening to Laura Sandifer, and she's the author of the book Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down, which you can buy at Amazon.com or all the usual suspects. And you can learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood at ActonAcademy.org. And I just love that last story about their own child and wanting to see what the other side was like, but found himself looking at the clock which means he's bored to death. And the freedom was what he craved. He just didn't know it till he lost it. By the way, I love that the mom said this about her son. I say this about my daughter all the time, that I'm excited to launch her into the world. I mean, I'll miss her, but I'll be excited to launch her into the world and to be a confident person, not inept, who can make good decisions. Laura Sandifer's story, Acton Academy's story, here on Our American Stories.